Welcome to Musing the Mysteries, a podcast by Barney Wiggett. Let's go, let's go. Well, here we are on the last leg of our adventure through the book of James. And so we're going to land this thing in this final episode now uh, in James chapter 5, verses 6 through 20. And if you followed these uh, eight or nine, ten teachings, uh, you've, you've heard me say already that James, the half-brother of Jesus, had a prominent theme in mind when he wrote. Uh, it, it's clear to me that he was very concerned that the church take Jesus' teaching about his kingdom seriously, especially in the area of a Christianity that is classless. That is, it's not based on a caste system. And because James observed the rich oppressing the poor, the powerful taking advantage of the vulnerable, and not only uh, in the culture around them, but, but in the church. And it was as though the church in his day had adopted from the non-believing culture a sort of caste system between the haves and have-nots. So in this last chapter, James really pulls out all the stops and confronts those from a higher socioeconomic status who oppress those with little to no status with impunity. And then we'll get to when he begins to encourage those with little to no status later in the chapter. But he begins by saying in verse 1 that we've already covered this, but let me refresh our memories. Now listen, you rich people, verse 1, weep and wail because of the mystery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who, has, who was not opposing you. Well, like I said in the, the end of the last episode, we have to be careful not to separate what he says next from what he's been saying about the rich oppressing the poor. Because he's not changing to a new topic at all. He's been speaking directly to the victimizers, and now he's turning to the victims. Like I said before, he has has severely disturbed the comfortable, and now he turns to compassionately comfort the disturbed. He's told the upper class to quit looking down on the lower, and now he tells the lower class to look up, look up to the Lord. So he says in in verse 7, Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. 
Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have, who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Okay, so he's, he rebuked the greedy rich, and now he turns to the suffering poor and tells them to be patient. Their harvest is coming. Jesus, the justice maker, is coming. The leveler is coming, and he will even things out. He'll level things out. And as sure as the spring rains are going to come, the oppressed will get the harvest they deserved, and if not in this life, in the next. Uh, not every good Christian poor person, I want to point out, is delivered from oppression and poverty in their lifetime. Some get justice here on the earth in this life, and some are going to have to wait until there, that is heaven. But, but the God of justice will be sure that they get justice. The oppressor, the oppressor will be judged and the oppressed will be vindicated. <clears throat> so, even David uh, journaled about this in, in his own struggle with injustice in, in Psalm 37. This psalm has been a real source of encourage to, uh, encouragement to me over the years. Quote, Do not fret because of evil men or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will do this. He will make your righteousness shine like the dawn, the justice of your cause like the noonday sun. Evil men will be cut off, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. So back to James. Be patient, he says to the oppressed. And, and be patient until the Lord's coming. Your oppressors are going to get theirs and, and, and you're going to get yours. So don't lose your head in your suffering. Be patient. When the Lord returns, he's going to fix all inequities. I mean, you'll get justice. If not now, certainly when, he, when Jesus comes back and, and, and he, is, he is near. The Lord's coming is near, James says. And I, frankly, I take that to mean two things. The first is that he's on his way back to the planet that has so much wrong with it. He's coming back soon. Jesus is coming back soon, like the Bible says. <clears throat> and when he does, he's going to even out the playing field. Um, but I also hear in this a hint of encouragement to the disadvantaged here and now that the Lord is on his way to you personally now. He's the Lord who is close to the brokenhearted, which means he's close to you if you're brokenhearted and you're treated unjustly. Reach out for him. He's right here. He's right there. He's coming soon to you personally. Um, you know, I have to admit that it's difficult for me, a white middle-class male who has never really experienced a day of a, a oppressive prejudice in my life, it's hard for me to grasp the, the import of James' encouragement to the poor here. Now, if your experience is something other than my, my own, you're likely to identify more readily with, with what he says, you know, be patient with the prejudice and injustice that you experience. <clears throat> the Lord is coming soon to set it right. 
But uh, for me, I, honestly, I have to admit that it's a little difficult for me to, uh, in my status of privilege, to understand the full import of, of what that really means. Not that I've never been treated unjustly, but not like somebody who does day in and day out because of socioeconomic status, race, or other uh, vulnerabilities. I mean, if, if, have you ever wondered <clears throat> how the African slaves would have ever embraced their oppressive slave owner's religion? I mean, has that ever, you know, dawn on you that how how ironic that is, how unlikely I would have thought that would have been the case, that they would have embraced their Christianity. I mean, you think they would have rejected everything about the, the lives and religion, especially the Christianity of the, their slavers, especially since the slavers used the Bible to, to justify their, their oppressive, heinous activities. Interestingly enough, and thankfully enough, many of them overlooked their, the, the atrocious version of Christianity that they saw in their owners, and, and I put owners in quotes, uh, and somehow they gleaned the message of deliverance from the scriptures, especially, I think, the uh, message of the escape from Egypt narrative, that portion of scripture uh, and the Bible's pros, pro, you know, promise of a better kingdom. I think, as, as I understand it, even up to this day in African-American churches, their preachers routinely preach about the glory of heaven, and their worship songs teem with references to the just kingdom of God. But it's interesting how they've, they were able to overlook the misinterpretation of their slavers' religion and to, to come to Christ uh, nevertheless. I mean, the slavers, you know, it seems to me that if they'd read James and actually applied it to their lives, they would have had to make a decision about their greed and evil treatment of their fellow human beings, right? I mean, fortunately, there were those who did just that and repented, like the former slave trader, uh, John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I don't know about this, but I can only hope that slaves in America, the land of the free and the home of the brave, read James for comfort, right? I mean, think of the relevance to them, this verse 7. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop. Patiently waiting for the, the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. In other words... You know, it's not always going to be like this. Don't lose hope. Someday you'll get what the justice that you deserve from the God of justice. It's like you've worked crop after crop without enjoying the fruits of your own labor. But there's another crop that you're going to you're going to harvest, a crop that it's going to be all yours. And God is going to see to it that you'll get all the rain you need and Jesus will come back and set things right. That must have been a, an amazing comfort. Should be an encouragement to people that are in oppressed peoples today. Um, furthermore, James encourages the downtrodden currently, you know, under the unjust thumb of those who have power over them, not only uh, to not only bear their suffer sufferings patiently, but also to avoid 
lashing out to one another. I should say lashing out at one another. So this is what he says next in verse 9. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you'll be judged. The judge is standing at the door. So he's just encouraged them to wait patiently for their just desserts, so to speak. But now he says, and while you're waiting for justice, be patient. Don't grumble and whine about your oppression and poverty. Don't get uptight with each other. Don't get bitter. Instead, get better. I mean, I don't, James wasn't saying that they shouldn't speak up or hope for justice. That, I mean, that's perfectly legitimate and even advisable. He wasn't telling them to just grin and bear their oppression or, or that to speak up for themselves uh, at, for, and one another would be wrong. He, he was saying, don't turn on one another. It, it, which is easy to do when you're frustrated and browbeaten and subjugated. Ellie Wiesel said, We must always take sides. Neutrality helps the oppressor, never the victim. Silence encourages the tormentor, never the tormented. Sometimes we must interfere. So yes, uh, that's the end of the quote. So yeah, I'm saying, especially if you're privileged, to have social clout, speak up for other people who have less clout than you do. And if you're in a position of unjust treatment and you don't have clout, speak up about it. Pray for it to change. Don't, you know, push, definitely push against it. But while you're doing that, be sure not to develop a self-pitying or angry spirit. You know, thank God for people like Martin Luther King Jr., uh, or thank God for Rosa Parks. Thank God for Nelson Mandela and Gandhi and Cesar Chavez. All these people who refuse to be silent in the face of classism and bigotry. But thank God also that each of, each of these opposed the ruling class with grace and with patience and with, with peacefulness. I mean, people like Lenin, people like Stalin, people like Castro and Mao, on the other hand, they fought for the underclass, but not with the spirit of patience and peace. They waged, they waged, you know, a murderous revolution in each of their cases. And, and, and in each case, they had no resemblance to the ways of Jesus. But MLK and Rosa Parks, Nelson Mandela, they, they saw... Uh, bigotry and classism, and they fought against it, but they did with patience and grace and peacefulness. You know, besides anger and self-pity, the bane of the poor and the powerless is the temptation to take on the same greedy, self-promoting, oppressive spirit of the wealthy. You know, and so then the oppressed become what? The oppressors. And if they do, as James says, they're going to be judged along with their oppressors. He's saying that he says the judge is standing at the door. So be patient if you're in, in an oppressed situation. Be patient in that unjust situation, James says. Pr pray, protest, and hope for better conditions. But don't take out your frustrations on your oppressors. Or worse, don't take them out on one another. Don't give in to infighting. Don't turn on each other. As James says to his downtrodden brothers and sisters, don't grumble against one another. See the, see the kind of the continual uh, emphasis. He's spoken 
uh, to the oppressors. Now he's speaking to the oppressed and he's saying, be patient in your suffering. Don't take out your frustrations on one another or uh, don't become like your oppressors. Be patient in your sufferings. And he goes on to say, if you want an example of that kind of patience, you don't have to look any further than the faithful in the Bible, the prophets and people like Job. He says in verse 10, Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. And as you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. Uh, You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and, and full of mercy. So he says, take the prophets as an example of patience. What, what about the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord? How did they, how did they need patience? I mean, think about it. <clears throat> uh, for his efforts to speak the truth like God told him to, Isaiah was sawn in half, Hebrews 11 says. And Jeremiah, for his efforts to speak the truth, was repeatedly beaten. Uh, over and over he was imprisoned, and once he was even dropped in a in a muddy well. I mean, not the treatment you'd necessarily expect, uh, you know, for somebody who's trying to please God and everything they did and said. And if you read Jeremiah, you can see that there were times when, when he wanted to quit, but he persevered. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah, Amos, all of these were severely persecuted, but they they knew that the Lord would eventually, if not immediately, settle his own scores and and relieve their suffering. And so they waited. They waited patiently. That's why James says, you know, think about the the prophets who waited patiently. And then, of course, he mentions Job. There's Job. You know, given his long list of losses, I, I usually call Job the biggest loser in the Bible. I mean, he lost his children. He lost his health. He lost his business, his standing in the community. But, but in the end, he endured. And James uses him as an example of patient suffering, as, as you would expect. He, he refers to Job's restoration as what the Lord finally brought about, what he finally brought about. And so if you're, you know, part of the oppressed and you're being patient, whether in this life or in the next, you, you're going to see what the Lord finally brings about for you. In fact, I, I want to say, you know, what finally means, I guess, is what God says it is. He finally might be, uh, I should say, his finally might be farther out than than you and I would prefer, but that's where patience fits in, right? Where we have to be patient for his finally. Yeah, so remember, this, this exhortation to be patient in, in suffering could legitimately for, refer to suffering of all types, like James said in the first chapter, trials of many kinds. But keep in mind that the context here and the context of really the entire epistle of James is the suffering of the marginalized and the oppressed, the poor that are taken advantage of by the rich, the worker that's under the thumb of the boss. And so James says, be patient, brothers and sisters, like the farmer is patient, and like Job was patient, like the prophets were patient. 
and don't give in, in other words, don't give in to their materialistic and greedy spirit, and don't try to force your way, your own way, up the ladder of success at, at any moral cost. Don't whine about your situation, but pray. Protest when you can, and be patient for God's comfort and intervention. Hope and pray for justice to come about here. And if not here in this world, there in the next. And so he, he reminds them, the Lord is full of compassion and full of mercy. In other words, he's saying, while, while you're suffering, under cheats and bigots and classists, remember how God treats his own. He's, he's full of compassion and, and mercy. In other words, he's on your side. And, and if God is for you, then who can prevail against you, Romans 8 says. You're not alone. The God of the universe sees you. That, you know, that reminds me of when Hagar was mistreated by Sarah and the Lord showed up to console her and she called God the, the God, the one who sees me in Genesis 16. And she named her son Ishmael, which means God hears. In other words, he, he sees the subjugated and he hears their cries. He's, he's full of compassion and mercy, especially for the ill-treated. So then James, after telling the, the oppressed to be patient and not uh, try to take matters into their own hands and get frustrated and, and lash out at each other. He says in verse 12, Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you'll be condemned. Now, it, 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 like I said, it might be a little difficult to establish his meaning here. That is, why did he add, you know, that warning in, in this place, in the context of encouraging the oppressed? And most commentators, as they do with a letter as a whole, they just see this as kind of rant, some random exhortation to a Christian life quality. And, and it is a great Christian life quality. And, and he's, he's, he's uh, reflecting something Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. But as I've said, you know, we, we just don't want to look at James like, a, you know, the book of Proverbs hopping from one topic to the next. And there's this running theme throughout. And, and I think uh, as he's talking about Christianity that is not classist, I think that most of this letter reflects, you know, his concern for the church to be rid of any sort of caste system. And I believe he, he wrote this epistle to rebuke the advantaged and re reinforce the disadvantage. And here, he's, he, I think he's reinforcing the disadvantage. He's still speaking to his poor brothers and sisters. And uh, he's been reinforcing them and warning them to not stoop to grumbling and judging. And now he tells them not to swear or take oaths, to let their yes be yes and their no, no. I, I, so, you know, what does that have to do with that? My best guess is that he's, He's warning the oppressed against stooping to the tactics of their oppressors. So let me paraphrase it like this. He's telling them, don't fight fire with fire. Don't start lying and cheating. Uh, don't cheat those who cheat you. They, they might have gotten to their place of power and privilege by 
tactics like that, but don't be like them. Don't stoop to their level and try to cheat your way out of poverty or step on others to climb your way up the socioeconomic ladder. You know, earlier he said to the underclass, don't grumble against each other. Now I think he's saying, don't cheat. Don't cheat each other or lie to each other. Be patient and endure. Don't take your frustrations out on one another and don't let your sufferings turn you into the kind of person you don't want to be. The kind of person uh, that that you look up at at the upper class who look down on you. Don't, don't Don't be like them. And when the oppressed become the oppressors, the cycle is, it's just perpetuated, right? When the cheated become cheaters themselves, then the world it has very little chance of becoming a better place. And like I said uh, before about myself coming from a place of privilege, it's easy, it's really easy for me to say all of this, but this is the bane, I think, of many depressed communities not exclusively, but especially inner-city ghettos that are populated predominantly with people of color. There, and I'm, I'm in uh, neighborhoods just like that often here in San Francisco, and I find that people there have, for generations, been marginalized and lived with socioeconomic inequity. And the most natural thing to do is to lash out and to fight against their plight with crime and violence. And and those of us born into, you know, the majority culture and or blessed with a lot, blessed with plenty, we might have a hard time understanding the predominance of urban, urban violence and crime. You know, we have to take into consideration generations of frustration and systemic institutional inequity when we're looking at the ghetto, when we're looking at uh, urban uh, neighborhoods where there's predominantly uh, full of crime and violence. But I, I think James warns people in neighborhoods just like that, don't lose touch. Don't lose touch with your moral compass and become like your oppressors. Don't stoop to the way that they've acted in their oppressive ways against you. I mean, what's the alternative for the downtrodden? How are they supposed to act? What are they supposed to do? Well, James actually tells him in the next verse, verse 13, is any one of you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone sick? Let them call for for the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick well, and the Lord will raise them up. And if they've sinned, they'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Now, I, I, I want to say again, I don't think James is switching topics here. I think he's still talking about the clash between upper and lower classes. And to the underclass, to the people under the thumb of the upper class, I think he's saying, people that are you know unjustly treated, I think he's saying in this whole section, okay, you're suffering, but don't grumble, don't cheat each other, wait for God, and while you're waiting, wait in prayer. 
And instead of trying to fight your way up the ladder, if you need help, ask God for help. Don't quarrel or don't fight or kill or lie or hoard. Don't be like them. Pray. And not just for your wants, not just uh, for your needs, but for the needs of other people. Be patient like the farmer and like Job and pray like Elijah. If you're being unjustly treated, don't complain, don't lie, don't cheat. Ask God for help. Does that make sense? You know, if things are good for you, James says, you know, thank God for that. If you're blessed by God, so be thankful. If you're happy, sing songs of praise. But if you're sick, James says, now I want you to take this in context of everything we've been saying. Call for the elders of the church to pray for you. Now, I believe in praying for the sick. I believe in healing. I practice praying for the sick often. And I practice in the church uh, the anointing of the elders on the sick. So this is relevant and pertinent to anybody who's sick for any reason, under any circumstances, rich and poor, and everybody in between. Everybody, uh, anyone can get sick, right? Rich or poor. But it's the poor listen, who have a lot less, because they have a lot less, have a lot less access to any kind of other help, like medical help, in James' day as, as, in, as well as in our day, in our country, and then in particular in developing countries. I mean, think about it. You know, because, it, you know, information about the poor is so ubiquitous now and we have the internet and we can at you know two or three clicks and we can get to Africa and we can get to Indonesia and we can get to the Middle East and we can get to uh, the urban poor in our own country and we know that the and I know from personal experience the poor tend to live in unhygienic unsanitary conditions and as a result are more vulnerable to sickness, and even, as a result of all of that, premature death. They, I mean, it's obvious, right? They have no recourse. They have no backup when, when they're injured or struck with disease. Um, <clears throat> I know people in the street who get a, a simple a cut, and because of lack of hygiene, that cut is unattended and turns to uh, an infection. And I've, I've seen people with with horrible infection as a result of just unattended uh, simple cuts that they've experienced or struck with diseases that other people wouldn't have been struck with. You know, the, the diet of the poor isn't going to be the same as the diet of the healthy, or I shouldn't say, I should say uh, the diet of the, the unpoor. And their environment is likely to be fraught with contaminants and illnesses that the well-healed H-E-E-L-E-D, would simply know nothing about. I mean, look at a chart sometime uh, on the life expectancy for people in developing countries. You're just going to see that the poorest countries, they all have less longevity than the richest. I mean, it's obvious. And in some cases, it's it's due to, you know, the the lack of potable water uh, or... Uh, in such, in some places, child mortality rate is just shocking because of just simple things like potable water. And 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 why call for the elders of the church? Why why does James just say call for the elders of the church? Well, 
if you're poor, it's not like they can just call the doctor. They, they have no money to pay for medical help, and, uh, but, but, if, but they do have the church and its leaders to call. The poor might not have access to doctors and medical help when they get sick, you know, in, from their inadequate diet or their inadequate shelter or their environment, but they do have what? The body of Christ. They've got the church. I sat in a shack in Mexico City one time with a missionary friend of mine. Uh, we were talking to a woman whose family lives um, on top of a garbage dump. Um, and she was holding a baby on her lap while she, while she talked to us about how uh, this baby had gotten so sick that he stopped breathing and, and he had no pulse. And they had no recourse. They had no money. They had no transportation to the hospital that was miles away. So what did they do? They just put the baby on the dirt floor and they prayed. That's all they knew to do. They didn't have any other option. And after a few minutes, that baby started to breathe again and was totally healed of his disease. I mean, do you ever wonder why the church has always flourished more in, in economically depressed times and, and places? I mean, historically, that's true. Jesus even said it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom, having all their needs and, you know, met otherwise, so, uh, or so they think they're met. But when the poor get sick, they don't have insurance. They don't, they don't have medical help. They don't have uh, any other recourse, but they do have the church. And when they're hungry, they can't just go to Safeway, but they have the church. And when they're in need of clothes and shelter, they don't have the money to, you know, to buy new clothes or a new house. But they have the church as their backup. I, you know, I recently noticed that, a, that all but a handful of Jesus recorded miracles were for the poor. I mean, think, it, it, check it out for yourself. Read the Gospels. And I found three or four miracles, maybe, that he performed on people uh, that were people of means. Everybody else was poor. Maybe that's why we see more miracles in developing countries. I, I, you know, I don't know if they have more faith than we do, but they certainly have no other place to go like most of us do without, you know, with or without health, health insurance. So James says, what does he say? If you're sick, pray and get the church leaders to pray for you. And, and in case they needed to be reminded of the power of prayer, what does he do? He uses the example of the prophet Elijah for encouragement. He says in verse 17, Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. I wonder why James chose Elijah out of all the other examples in the Old Testament as a model of faith and prayer. I mean, obviously, he was a great man of God and uh, had an amazing uh, effect in, uh, to his prayers. But, I, you know, I can't be certain, but maybe he had in mind, just try to follow me on this, some similar socio-political and socio-economic circumstances between Elijah's day and his own, James and Elijah's day. Both James and Elijah lived under the oppressive thumb of an evil dictator. 
Think about that. For James, it was crazy Nero. And for Elijah, it was evil Ahab and his wicked wife Jezebel who were ruling the country. I mean, it's possible that to James, the way that Elijah responded to oppression uh, over his people set an example for anyone facing similar circumstances. In other words, Elijah prayed and things changed. Maybe that's what the church in the first century should do as well, and maybe even in ours. In other words, he's just said, instead of complaining, verse 9, or lying, verse 10, or sinning, verse 15, uh, James is saying, Elijah, what he did was he prayed. And eventually, Ahab and Jezebel, they were ousted. He prayed, and God intervened with, you know what, drought, and three years later with rain. More importantly, many of uh, Elijah's people, they found their way back to God, which is what James was hoping for, for his wandering people, because in a minute, or just a few verses later, he's going to talk about people that have wandered away from God and us bringing them back. So maybe... Maybe, just maybe, James chose Elijah, the you know, prayer-wielding iconoclast, to inspire his readers of his time, especially the poor who suffer under Nero's oppressive rule, and, and tr- to try to encourage them to follow suit, do what Elijah did. And instead of grumbling and cheating and lying, uh, trust God and, and, and pray. And... Uh, uh, you know, I don't want to draw too close a parallel between either Elijah's day or James' day and ours, but I would encourage us to be prayerful and faithful in the face of whatever craziness and injustice that we experience in our own day and in our own nation. I mean, this really preaches here. I'm just, I'm just doing some, some talking here, but this really preaches, and I think you should, we should all be thinking about this. You know, whether the injustices that we experience, uh, you know, have to do with socioeconomics or race or gender or social standing, pray, 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 pray like Elijah, who was a man, James says, just like us. In other words, go to God. And as I said before, sometimes we go to God and and, and he tells us to stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. At other times, we go to God and he directs us to take action in some way and push back on the circumstances and use whatever resources are available to us to, you know, resist injustice and prejudice. But the bottom line is go to God, go to God, go to God. And that is James' final exhortation in verse in, uh, in verse 19, that's what he says about going to God. He says, my brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the air of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. The message version of this says, my dear friends, it if you know people who have wandered off from God's truth, don't write them off. Go after them. Get them back, and, and, and you will have rescued precious lives from destruction and prevented an epidemic of wandering away from God. I don't know about you, but I see an epidemic of wandering away from God in the church. And uh, 
James certainly saw a lot of people wandering away from the truth. Uh, People who were walking closely with Jesus, and then they weren't. And of course, there's any number of reasons why people wander from the truth. And and we're responsible to bring any brand, any kind of wanderer back, right? But in light of this letter's theme, uh, I can only speculate about two groups that James might have had in his mind, the rich wanderer and the poor wanderer, the upper class, middle class wanderer and the lower class wanderer. It doesn't matter. If you're a wanderer, you're a wanderer and you need to be brought back to God. But I think he might have seen the, the wealthy wanderer wandering toward, what, materialism and oppression, while the poor wanderer he saw wandering away from God out of suffering and discouragement. And he appeals to the church of his time for help in bringing them both back. He didn't want to do it on his own. He couldn't just, he couldn't find every wanderer and bring them back. He needed help. That's what the body of Christ is, right? That's what the church is. I mean, I think these things should be on our minds and and hearts today. Because let me, you know, contemporize it, if that's a word. Let me contemporize it a little. Some of our own who are privileged majority culture Christians have wandered away from the truth and into lives of acquisition and entitlement. I mean, I'm just seeing this so much. People that are wandering away from the truth of the gospel, the truth of the word of God, and wandering into a even a, a, a sanitized version of Christianity that, that uh, even celebrates their acquisitive, acquisitiveness and entitlement. Some of these, you know, they've wandered from the truth, but they've stayed quite comfortably in the church. Uh, I call them church-going wanderers. And uh, they have their materialistic prosperity gospel reinforced every Sunday when when they hear a sermon on how God wants everybody, you know, wealthy. They're, they're, they're backsliders in the church. They're, they've backslidden in the church. And I think sometimes, somehow, we, we, we've got to find ways uh, for them to turn from the error of their way and help them turn from the error of their way and cover over a multitude of their sins. Because there are going to be a lot of multitude, there's going to be a lot of sins, a multitude of sins that will need to be covered over. Not only the sins that they commit in their uh, materialistic Christianity, <clears throat> but the, 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 uh, the multitude of sins that they will engender in other people as they model that kind of Christianity to, to their brothers and sisters around them in the church. And then there are the poor sufferers, the underprivileged, who also wander away from the truth in their discouragement and become cynical. Uh, They've been mistreated. They've been taken advantage of by those above them. Or they're just poor and were born poor, and that's the way it's been all their lives. And James speaks to them as well about being, uh, being recovered back to the truth because they wander away in their cynicism and their jadedness. They get disappointed with God and with with themselves and with the world. 
Um, remember when James spoke of, uh, in chapter two, that people at the church door who were told that the poor at the church door that were told to sit on the floor while the gold adorned man got, you know, got the good pew. Well, people that get treated like that become bitter and want nothing to do with an obvious class, classist church. And I think for these, we have to apologize for how our family has acted and, and compel them to give the church another chance, to give Jesus another chance, right? Give us another try. We'll do better. We have to do better at leveling the playing field in our churches. Even in our churches, we have to do that. See, the sinner who needs to be turned back to the truth might be the wealthy man with gold jewelry or the poor man with shabby, dirty clothes. Both need God's help, and, and we find that help in community, the sort of community that acts like a family, and all, albeit a diverse, a very beautifully colorful, diverse family. Of all the colors, of all the socioeconomic strata, a diverse family. See, if we don't act like that kind of family, some of us are going to wander off and commit a multitude of sins, and some of us are going to die. It's that serious. The rich wanderer will become more and more greedy and repressive, and the poor backslider will become increasingly bitter and repressed. But see, James' version, a vision of the church is that the rich and poor sit next to each other and embrace each other in, in, in mutual symbiotic relationships where the rich man needs the poor as much as the poor man needs the rich. You know, that, that means if someone veers, veers off of the narrow path, <clears throat> someone goes and gets them. It might be the rich person who stumbles and the poor man picks him up. And it might be the reverse, where, where the, the poor man stumbles and the rich man picks him up. But James calls us brothers and sisters here. Some of us are well-heeled and others uh, of us are no-heeled, uh, but we're family. You know what this reminds me of is Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech and that he gave in 1963 on the National Mall in D.C., I'm just going to quote a piece of it, and I can't, I can't say it like he did, of course. But uh, he said, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. He said, I have a dream that one day down in Alabama with its vicious racists, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification, one day, right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. He went on to say, I have a dream that one day every valley will be exalted, every hill and mountain shall be made low, the rough places will be made plain, and the crooked places will be made straight, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope, he went on to say. This is the faith that I go back to the South with. With this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, 
we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. End quote. What an iconic speech that he made so many years ago. Well, as we wind up this series on the book of James, it seems clear to me that James had the same dream as Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream. It wasn't just about, you know, uh, black and white, rich and poor, powerful, powerless, big and small. It's for everybody that would join hands and be one in the body of Christ someday. You remember Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17? The crux of it is that we would be one as he and the Father were one. I wonder if James heard Jesus pray a version of that at the dinner table at some point. I I can imagine him listening in on the many times that his half-brother Jesus prayed and when he commanded his followers to love their neighbor as much as they love themselves. And I said way back in our introductory remarks that James' letter contains so much of the content of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and other teachings that it makes you think that he was there if he wasn't, you know, because he wasn't a follower of his, of his half-brother yet until after the resurrection. But you just wonder how much he heard and saw. Maybe he snuck in among the crowd to listen, or maybe the principles of it so exuded from Jesus that he that James picked it up by example. He grew up hearing and seeing the way that, is, that Jesus treated people, the rich and the powerful, along with the poor and the powerless. And everyone was the same to Jesus. That's what he would have seen. Jesus didn't see class. He didn't see upper, middle, or lower class. He just saw people. He saw what Martin Luther King described as a beautiful symphony of brotherhood among all people. This, to me, is the message of James to, the, to a church that was veering away from the vision of brotherhood and equality. He saw the disintegration of the people that Jesus died to integrate. And so he wrote a letter. His missive is the Bible's most concentrated appeal to a church to free itself of castes and classes, a church that believes that all men, all women, and all children are created equal and treats them as such. Blessings, blessings to us all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go, let's go.